Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Behind technologies that effectively solve real problems, there's a methodological design process. From identifying and defining a problem to creating a solution, the process is critical for good design. To discuss the process involved in developing effective technologies, I'm joined by the founder of a successful medical technology startup that is having significant impact on people with chronic respiratory conditions. Mikesh Udani is co-founder and CEO of Albus Health, a medical technology spin-out company from the University of Oxford that develops intelligent remote monitoring systems. Their first product is an award-winning device that remotely monitors respiratory symptoms without anyone having to do or wear anything. Within three years of starting, they have already won several innovation awards, including the AI in Health and Care Award by the UK government, which was announced by the Secretary of State for Health and Care. They also raised nearly three million pounds in funding and commercialized their first product through a contract to supply one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies. Mikesh, who studied mathematics and computer science, started his career in finance at Deutsche Bank. Prior to starting Albus Health, he completed a Master's of Computer Science degree at Oxford University and was an Oxford Biodesign Fellow. Thank you, Mikesh, for joining me today. Thank you, Kinga, for having me and this opportunity to speak to you. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your company and how you grew it and I've seen you growing it over the years, and it's it's a very exciting venture to talk about. So to start, can you tell me a little bit about Albus Health and what the technology involves? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So as you mentioned, um, we are a spin-out company from the University of Oxford in medical technology. So while we were at the university, we learned that monitoring of symptoms at home was very challenging. And it was particularly challenging for things like nocturnal symptoms, which show up when people are sleeping. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the reasons for this are um, the tools that exist right now, they rely on someone doing something actively every day, often multiple times a day for the symptoms to get monitored. The gold standard that is used in monitoring some of these symptoms are symptom diaries, where patients are asked, how have your symptoms been over the last couple of weeks? And this relies on patients remembering and reporting their symptoms. And in practice, people often forget to do them or they do it for a few days and then stop doing it. For someone who has a chronic condition, you can imagine how difficult it is to do this every day for all their lives. So there's a lot of missing data. There's a lot of recall bias where people can't really remember how their symptoms were and they recall them differently from how they were. Some of them are not aware of how the symptoms were because they showed up when they were sleeping. And this is particularly a challenge for children and elderly. So if you're Mm -hmm. expecting a seven-year-old child or a 70-year-old elderly individual to remember how their symptoms were two weeks ago at night, that's really not going to work. And this led to a lot of issues, both in clinical research as well as in healthcare. So in research, this led to very poor quality data, which means that trials continued to be quite suboptimal. They took a lot longer to conclude and required a lot more people. And in healthcare, this led to 
a lot of preventable emergencies such as asthma attack, which could have been prevented if some of the symptoms got monitored early on when they showed up, rather than things getting much worse and people having to go to the hospital. So to solve this problem, um, we developed a small non-contact tabletop device that can automatically monitor a range of respiratory symptoms and environmental metrics without anyone having to do or wear anything. So how it works is when you walk into a room with automated lights, there are sensors in the corner which pick up your motion and turn the lights on. We use similar sensors to pick up the small movements in the body when someone breathes and calculate the respiratory rate. Similarly, we use acoustic sensors to pick up ambient sound. And from there, our algorithms pick up sounds of clinical relevance, such as coughing. In addition, there are sensors which pick up information about the air in the room, things like temperature, humidity, presence of volatile organic compounds. And all of this information is collected completely automatically. So this product is designed to be fully plug and play. So you can plug it in and then you can forget about it and it will automatically collect all of this symptom every day. So this makes it suitable for people of all ages, regardless of the technical ability or geographical location. And perhaps what, what is more relevant in the world right now is that it does not need any contact, neither between two people or between an individual and the device. So it can literally be posted to the person, they can, they can plug it in, and symptom monitoring will happen every day for as long as needed, even if they forget that they have the condition. That's fantastic. And as you said, I mean, with breathing, it's really hard to remember exactly what challenges. How breathless you were. Oh, yeah. And how much you coughed. And, and to quantify how much you coughed. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Especially in the in the middle of the night, which is really important. <laughs> Sounds like an amazing technology. As you said, Oxford is your base and Albus Health is actually an Oxford University spinoff company. So you and your co-founder yeah. were part of the Oxford by Design program. Can you tell me a little bit about that program and how that played into you starting this venture? Yeah, absolutely. The biodesign program is based on the biodesign methodology. It was started at Stanford about 15 or 17 years ago. The premise of the biodesign program is to bring people from different skills together and take them through a structured process of medical technology innovation, starting with the needs rather than the solution. Mm. And once a full understanding of the need evolves, uh, then jumping onto what potential solution could be and engineering those solutions to build the product which can be commercializable. So this is what we were doing at the university when we were researchers. And um, after a year of this program, we eventually got funding and, and started the company. That's how Albus came into being. Fantastic. So let's dig into that process a little bit more and look at the actual process of you developing, looking at the needs and then developing that into a technology and then to a company. You talk about that it was a very deliberate process referred to as a needs-based innovation in which you identify the need, as you said, and then create the technology, which kind yeah. of sounds like the way problem solving should be and is being taught. <laughs> so, but it's great that there is a real, there's a real focus on that to, to really start with the need. So can you tell me a little yeah. bit about that overarching process of what that looked like to go for needs-based innovation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As you were mentioning, uh, this approach of problem solving seems to be more effective. This is how it should be. Um, however, when we hear of startups or when we hear of spin-out companies, there's often this romantic view of some people having a Eureka moment where they've gotten this brilliant idea 
all friends sitting in a bar after a few drinks, suddenly thinking, hey, why don't we do this? And that turning into a, a multi-billion startup. The, the biodesign process kind of flips it over its head and starts with where the problem is and starts with where the market is. And only after the understanding has become very clear, do they then allow thinking about the solution. Right from the beginning, what happened was they brought people with complementary skills into the program. So I had a background in mathematics, computer science, and finance. Uh, my co-founder, William, he was a doctor. Third colleague was an electrical engineer. And we were hired separately to go through this program. And we were hired for our specific skills because the understanding was these would be the right skills and experiences that would be helpful in developing a product in medical technology to bring it into the cycle of care. Mm. That multidisciplinary aspect is extremely crucial. And two things that really are almost obvious, but really, as you said, I don't think they happen nearly enough in the way it's being taught and in industry. One is looking at mm. the need and the problem, focusing on that mm. first, and then mm. having all the different expertise play into it. Because as you said, it is obvious that you start with a need first, not just with a eureka moment. How did the fact that you yourself have a multidisciplinary background and also your co-founder has a different background than you, what was the importance of that and how did that play into the design? The different backgrounds or the skills or experiences were selected specifically for the purpose of developing technology-based products in healthcare. So it is, it is designed to bring in someone with a healthcare background who can understand the problem and explain the disease state understanding and what the medical problem is. So that's why having a doctor was very, very, was basically critical. An electrical engineer and a computer scientist would help with the developing of the tech itself, building um, either the hardware, firmware, and the software, and the algorithms that go into solving the problem. So very simply put, at the very, very early stage, it's very important that the people who are starting the company have the core skills that are necessary to understand the problem and to build the solution. So that's how within the biodesign program, it was very helpful to have some level of experience and expertise within the immediate team. And besides being equipped to some degree in solving the problem, we also brought in different perspectives of looking at the problem. So, for example, if I tell you a little bit more about how the process worked, uh, for the first four months, we would just go to the hospital and just keep noting down different problems that people were facing. And we came up with a list of about 250 different problems in a range of different areas. It's respiratory care, geriatrics, pediatrics, heart failure. And from a large set of, set of problems, we came down to just a handful of them by looking at what was the patient impact, what was the economic impact, what had people done to solve it before? Why were they unsuccessful? So when we came down to the small set of problems, we didn't know anything about the solution. We didn't know if, if it would be a hardware-based solution or a software-based solution, what is the technology that we would use. We knew nothing about it. And it was deliberated that we don't think anything about the solution at all. We would get a slap on our wrist if we started talking about anything about the solution. We were supposed to focus about the problem only. So when we came down to just three problems that we had identified, we knew nothing about the solution, but we knew everything about the problem, how the patients felt, how their families felt, who were paying for it, how much were they paying, if it was solved, who would pay, how much would they pay, and so on. And with this full understanding of the problem, we then went into thinking about all different possible solutions, right from a sticky note on the fridge to a completely mechanized robot. Anything that came to our mind in a brainstorming session was a solution. And again, we started with a very long list of solutions 
uh, about 100, 120 of them, and came down to just one solution for one problem hmm. by looking at what is it that we as a team can build? What is it that we can bring to the market in a reasonable time scale with a limited amount of funds? So things like developing a new drug was out of the window very quickly because it, was, it would take 10 years and millions and millions of dollars or pounds to build it. Um, what is it that would be clinically adoptable while being commercially scalable? And then looking at all of these different factors, we just came down to one solution for one problem, which we then started building. So by the time we came to building the solution, we understood a lot of different constraints around which the solutions had to be designed. And these were taken into account from day one of solution building, which helped build a solution that was very well catered to addressing the problem. The constraints that you're referring to, what kind of constraints do you mean? What would be a constraint that you would... So by constraints, I mean, let's say when, when we were talking about developing solutions for people with uh, chronic respiratory conditions, one of the constraints had to be that it should be completely automated. It should work without anyone having to do anything. And we came to that conclusion because when we looked at all the different solutions that existed in the market or people had tried before, and we looked at why they weren't successful, one of the biggest reasons was that people didn't use them beyond a few days. Mm-hmm. And it was this understanding of why solutions had failed um, gave us, basically helped us arrive at the conclusion that any solution that, that could work over a period of time would have to be as automated and passive as possible. And another constraint was, um, you know, it has to work in a home environment because some of the early warning signs of an impending emergency shows up at the home. Also, it's important to shift care from hospitals to home. That's where healthcare should move. So from day one, we were designing a solution that could fit in a home environment and that could work um, at a home setting rather Mm -hmm. than at a hospital setting. So when I talk about constraints, these are some of the insights that I'm talking about, which we gained while looking at the problem. And these are things that we laid down and put down as constraints when we were thinking of the solutions and building it. Mm -hmm. That's really good. So then you had the constraints and you were building the technology. You narrowed it down to the technology that you felt was most viable. And so at that point, the process led to starting the... Then prototyping. So we started trying uh, different things to build that technology. Um, so what, what typically happens is when you're trying to build something, let's say when you're trying to build a solution that would work in healthcare, there are many different aspects to consider. There are technical, clinical, commercial, and regulatory aspects to consider. And under each of these verticals, there are 10, 20 different problems that one has to solve. So at that point in time, one of the things that we were trying very hard to do was to understand of the myriad of problems that we need to solve, which are the most critical ones that we should solve first. Mm -hmm. Because as a startup and as a small team, you have very little time, you have very little resources, and um, you have to convince a lot of people that you will be able to do something over the next two to three years. And for that, I mean, you don't have any evidence as in, it's not like um, a company that has been running for 10 years, which has cash flows and financial information for the 10 years, and you can project the historical data into the future. You have to convince people that you have identified the issue, you have broken it down into its key components, and you've identified which are the critical components that we should be solving and we should be solving first. Mm. So that's what we did. We broke down the wider problem into smaller components, and and we identified which are the one or two most critical components that we should build and generate evidence on. So that's what we did. We started prototyping. We started generating evidence that we can do what we are proposing to do. And based off of that, we applied for funding. 
very thankfully secured some funding through a government award as well as some a little bit of VC investment and then started a company at the back of that. Because by then the program had ended and we were out of money. So we went without a salary for a few months, but secured funding and then um, have had a salary since. Fantastic. That's really good. Well, that is certainly a very complex process. What did you find most challenging in that journey? Well, different. I found different things to be challenging. Well, I found different things to be most challenging at different points in time. But if mm. you go back to the process of biodesign, biodesign itself, one of the things that was quite challenging in the beginning was not knowing what we were building. So as I said, for the first four months, we were just looking at the problem and we had absolutely no clue what is it that we were going to build. So, you know, if you meet a friend and they ask you, what is it that you're doing? Say, okay, well, we're working in uh, medical technology innovation. I say, oh, okay, what are you, what's your idea? What's your product? And they say, oh, actually, we don't, we don't have one yet. I said, oh, okay, so which area are you working on? What's the key problem are you working on? They said, actually, I, I don't even know that. Hmm. And uh, by then the other person starts to feel like, okay, this guy is just talking rubbish and, you know, <laughs> just uh, faffing around, probably just doing like some master's academic um, program, which was not going to lead to anything. And I remember even having doubts myself, is this really going to work? We've spent so much time, we've not identified this Eureka idea. Is it ever going to lead to something which is tangible and successful? So it, that, it was a bit difficult to keep soldiering on in this process with just trusting it and knowing that maybe um, six months down the line, we'll have something which is tangible and which we can tell and show. But at the moment, we just need to understand about the problem. So that was, a, that was difficult. And your mind probably always wanted to jump to the solution, didn't it? We always wanted to do that. That was very difficult. We had to, it was really a test of our discipline. Mm-hmm. And I must say, people who were mentoring us, they did a good job of steering us back into the problem and outside of the solution space. It's, it's a very natural tendency. As soon as we saw a problem, we started dreaming about what a potential solution could be mm-hmm. and getting very attached with that idea which we had come up with. And sometimes I, I, I found myself justifying the solution and trying to look at the problem as a means of something that the solution would solve, mm-hmm. which is quite a slippery slope because what one should do is look at the problem the way it is and not the way we want to see it. So, you know, the, mm. the classic idea of if you have a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. That is what happens when you come up with an idea and then look for a problem that it would solve. Yeah. But the whole premise of the biodesign program was to flip it over, is to, is to just start with a blank canvas and focus on the problem. So yes, it was an exercise that required a lot of discipline to, to keep our focus on the problem. That got very difficult. Um, but thankfully, we stayed on track, or at least got back on track at the right time to eventually understand the problem well enough before right. jumping on the solution. The second thing, as I mentioned, we were we were people people from very different backgrounds. And when I say different backgrounds, it's not just academic or experience uh, backgrounds in terms of experience. We had grown up in three different continents. We had different interests. We had different ways of thinking. The way a computer scientist looks at the world is very different from the way a doctor looks at the world, the way they solve problems, the way they they are trained into coming up with a solution is very different. However, when you're in the program together, you have to take a lot of decisions together. So you might be looking at the same piece of data, but your interpretations would be very different. You might be looking at the same problem, but the solution that you think of or the way to address it that you come up with would be very different. Mm-hmm. So while we were rich in perspective, coming at it from different angles, it was also 
quite a challenging task to align on how we should move forward. We never have the time to try five different things before deciding which one to do. Or even if we have to do that, we have to do that very quickly. So taking decisions together was um, quite a challenging task. And with time, what we learned to do is to take decisions based on evidence rather than hunches or intuition or our preconceived notion and biases. So this is something that we learned to do with time, which helped overcome some of these challenges uh, that happen when people come from different perspectives. And the other thing that we did slightly later on is that we divided responsibilities. We identified who was going to be responsible for what and gave that person the ownership and freedom for that bit of the work, rather than everybody coming together and deciding every single line of a grant application that has to go through. Those are really important lessons and, and very hard to learn and negotiate at such a stage, but so important because you bring your different perspectives and different backgrounds and knowledge to the problem, which I'm sure really improved the entire process in the end. So looking back in this complex process, you've learned a lot, but is there something that you wish you had known before? For the process itself, I guess now I have a lot more faith in it. And now I'm a lot more convinced of its importance and doing it exactly in that order rather than jumping into the solution. So mm. if I had the sense of understanding that this would work, I would have worried a little bit less about the process. So the knowledge that it's a very good process would have made me spend a little less energy worrying about it or doubting it. The other thing that I would have done differently is I would have tried to surround myself with more entrepreneurs, more people who were starting companies rather than people who had an academic background and in an academic setting. From what I understand, the purpose of a startup is to build solutions that can sell. The purpose of academia, again, from what I understand, is furtherance of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And there are cases when there is an overlap between the two, but fundamentally, these are different objectives. Being in an academic setting helped a lot by because it helped us get in touch with experts very quickly. It helped us develop methodological and scientific rigor. However, the timescales and objectives in academia are very different from the timescales, objectives and pace of a startup. So Mm -hmm. going back, I would have made more of an effort to speak to more entrepreneurs and founders who had been successful and a few years down the journey where we were. That is really important to always connect with people who have been down the road that you're going down on to learn from their experience and how they experienced and also what they learned along the way. Yeah, You said that when you were trying Mm. to identify the problem, often you were losing faith in it because it was difficult. You didn't really see where it was going. You didn't quite have faith in it working out. What would have helped Mm. you at that point to have more of an understanding that this is actually the right process? Well, I I wouldn't say we were drifting very often, but we definitely got restless. So I got a bit restless and um, I started to lose my patience because I wanted to jump to a solution and start getting funding. One of the challenges was that I just finished my degree. I had a student loan. I had the loan to pay off and there was a limited period of time until which we had funding. So if we didn't start a company by then, it, I would be financially in a pretty tight position. And because the, the, the process was so, was so intense, it's not like at the end of the process, we'd have six months to decide if we wanted to do this or not. And for those six months, we'd have a salary coming in. Mm-hmm. So the pressure was on. Yeah, that led to a bit of pressure to quickly, quickly build some actually test if it's really going to work or not, or is it just in our minds. In terms of what could have helped me at that point in time, I I must say the people who were managing the program did a very good job of giving us assurance that, look, this has worked. 
and this has worked with these and these companies. Again, what worked very well was when we spoke to people who were established in the industry and we explained to them what we were doing and how we were doing it, they were very positive about it. And they said that this is the best industry practice. This mm -hmm. is how very established companies solve problems. And this is exactly where, where a lot of startups go wrong. You're doing the right thing by addressing the problem first. So those are the things that were done very well. I must say that some of the hesitation from my part or from my colleagues' part came about because we had this preconceived romantic view of what a startup is like. And, you know, in the first two months, you have this brilliant idea. And in the third month, you get funding and the company just takes off. I must clarify that people who were managing the program did a very good job uh, looking back at, at bringing us back to track and giving us reassurance. If they were to do something else, if there was something else that could have been done, I think one thing that, that could have helped us would have been to speak to more entrepreneurs. And that is not because they might have done the process or they might have gone through the same journey. It's only because this is something that I find about some entrepreneurs who I've been very lucky to meet who've been successful. And the one quality that they have is, is resilience. They just they can just keep going. Speaking to them or bringing them on board from a very early stage would have given us a lot of reassurance insurance and would have made me feel that yeah it's it's tough but it's tough for everyone mm -hmm. and we are taking up the right we're doing the right things in the right order mm -hmm. so that would have helped us build a lot more internal energy and, and ammunition to keep going that is absolutely so critical i'm so glad you're sharing this story because in so many different challenges if only people could hear from others about the nitty-gritty of that challenge then yeah you understand that you're not the only one going through that process. And it's, it's a process. Other people experience it very exactly, much the yeah. same way, but it's not talked about a lot. As you said, startups, it's, mm, well, mm. you know, we had a brilliant idea. We jumped on one leaf and the next leaf, and suddenly we were at the finish, yeah. finish line. <laughs> and really digging into the challenges that you experience in any type of process is so important for others because going through it is a lot easier if you know Actually, this is just part of the process. It's hard, exactly, but yeah. it's hard for everyone. So that's really, really good. Yeah, exactly. That's how it 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 appears on LinkedIn because you only see the updates. Mm -hmm. You know, if you if you were to follow the startup's journey based on LinkedIn, it would seem like, wow, this is an amazing life, and yes. all that's happening in your company are successes and there are no failures. Just like if you just look through Facebook and mm -hmm. followed someone timelines, it would look like their life is going brilliantly well and they are moving to the job of their dreams and marrying the person <laughs> they've always loved and having children, having a great family. But that yeah. might not reflect their actual day-to-day -day reality. Exactly. Um, so I think a part of this is probably the pressure of showing that everything is going well and everything is in, is in order. But as you rightly pointed out, if you speak to people who have gone through it, they tell you that the impression that people often get is far from reality. Mm -hmm. Not that reality is less fulfilling. I think I've not met a single entrepreneur who's gone back and said, actually, yeah, I, I, I regret doing what I was doing or I was, it was a very bad experience. I would never do it. Mm -hmm. um, I think most of them talk about it being fulfilling, but that comes through the sense of resilience that is built along the way mm. and not because everything is just going well. Absolutely. So that is something that would, have, that would have certainly helped. That's huge. And when creating these networks and reaching out to talk to others who have gone before you on the path, mm. digging into those questions of what was challenging and how that's really important. So in terms of what you learned in this process, what really sticks out, either mm. professional or personal? What are some things that you think back on and think I've learned these nuggets of wisdom? 
one of the reasons why I feel very fortunate about uh, doing what I'm doing is I feel that there are lots of opportunities to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, so a few of those are, for example, I've I've learned a lot better how to manage projects and how to manage teams than when I had started uh, working on this about four, three, four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned to have very difficult conversations. One of the things that I've figured out or that I've learned in, the, in this process is that it's far more difficult and far more important to figure out what is the right problem to solve than given a problem and then figuring out the solution. So by that, what I mean is there would, there would always be many different problems that one might have to address. Of the 20 or 10 or five different problems that are in front of me, I think one of the skills that is most important or could be most helpful is to identify which of these is most important and most critical. Also, what level of success or result is good enough to then call it a success and then move on. Mm -hmm. So let's say if you're trying to build up a model to detect cough, should we say 80% is good enough and then we move on? Or is it, does it have to be 95%? Does it have to be 99%? Is it important to do cough monitoring first or is it important to do respiratory monitoring first? Hmm. So trying to get down to and defining the specific problem is very, very important. And that's more important than coming up with a solution for any problem. That's one of the things that I'd say I've, I've learned, which has been very helpful. I've also started to trust my intuition on people a little bit more. And I used to, it's probably also evolved with time, but that is something over, over time that I felt if I have an intuition about certain aspects especially when dealing with individuals. A, it's very important to be very clear with myself, whether it's an intuition or it's a bias. Mm-hmm. They are kind of similar, but... It's important to differentiate. Yeah. Am I getting a bad feeling about a person because the person looks a certain way? Or am I getting a bad feeling about a person because the person said something about a particular product or about what de- what excites them or what mm-hmm. makes them very angry, which which doesn't seem right? So especially when it comes to hiring or deciding who to trust... I think some of these intuitions can be very helpful as long as they are not based on biases, which might not be appropriate. So learning how to distinguish between these and developing a greater sense of trust in intuition is something that I've learned, which I find very helpful. And I think the most important thing was, is that attitude is more important than skills or knowledge. So how people think and how they react is probably in the long term more important than let's say, how well they can code or how much they know about a certain market. Those are really big, big takeaways for sure. And I, I know that there's been many, many others along the way, but those are really important ones to highlight. So thank you. You've talked about the balance of the commercial aspects of developing your company with the rigorous research and development. While having limited funds, you need to balance that quite carefully. How do you go about that? What is your approach? I I wouldn't say uh, the commercial aspects in R&D are mutually exclusive. In fact, they're very closely linked, and that's how we recommend to, to, to see them. Again, I'm saying all of this with a big caveat that it's not that I'm that we are super successful. We are still in our journey. We are still learning. We're still trying to find our way around things. So please do take everything that I'm saying with a pinch of salt and and approach it with with skepticism. Uh, what I've found to be most useful is to look at R&D and commercial aspect. All of them leading towards the ultimate goal of a startup, which is to build solutions that are valuable and solutions that people will be willing to buy. From that regard, it it helps me the most when I look at R&D as a means of getting there rather than the end result. It's very different in an academic institution where the R&D is done to uncover the truth and looking looking at it just the way it is. 
So for example, if one is in academia, let's say they spent two years looking into whether motion sensors could be used to measure respiratory rate or not. And after two years, they figured out that, okay, you can't use them. That would still be in some regard successful because they've discovered or, or they've, um, they've identified that a certain technology can't be used to, to solve a certain problem. Mm-hmm. But if a startup spent two years trying to discover whether motion sensors could be used to identify respiratory rate, and after two years they said, oh, actually, this can't be done, that would be abysmal. If the ultimate objective is to build easy-to-use respiratory monitors, then you should spend as little time as possible in a particular technology to answer whether we can go further or not. Mm-hmm. Maybe spend a month into motion sensors, and if you realize it's not there, just move on to something else. So realizing what the ultimate objective is, is what should guide where the R&D effort should be. And it helps to structure the R&D so that it can eventually become commercially uh, scalable and, and, and useful. So it's putting those barriers in place and constantly reflecting on where, where that barrier should be. How long do we spend on something before we say, okay, we're no longer spending R&D on it. We're moving on to the next. Uh, how much do we really yeah. need to know in order to make our decision? which must be a difficult negotiation constantly to be deciding where's that line. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it's, it's really knowing. It's always be conscious and aware of why exactly are we doing the R&D and uh, how much R&D is good enough and when is it that we should shift focus. Yes, it is difficult to be constantly questioning that and constantly trying to assess how much time and energy we should spend on it. It also gets very difficult sometimes when the landscape shifts. For example, when COVID happens, a lot of things around the world have changed. So a lot of the assumptions that we started with are no longer true. And how do we now change our priorities and our timelines and the avenues in which we put our time and energy, mm-hmm. given the new shift in landscape? So even that makes it very difficult to always constantly be adapting um, our work. Absolutely. So you've had a lot of success and you've created an amazing startup. What success are you most excited about with Albus Health? Well, as I said, uh, we're still we're still learning, we're still developing, and um, thankfully we've we've had some successes with building something which people have found valuable and are, and are adopting. Personally, to me, the thing that I'm most proud about would be our team. I'm incredibly fortunate to be working with the people who are a part of Albus, um, those who are with, within the core team, the extended team, and also the wider network of subcontractors or mentors of people who we deal with, um, including clients, collaborators, partners. So I'd say that's one of the things that I'm very excited about, the people who we've brought together, who've all come together with a common goal of building these products that can make that difference in in healthcare. And uh, the other thing that I feel very fortunate we've done is that we did the right things in the right order, which again kind of goes back to the biodesign program. We spent a lot of time into understanding the problem. We brought in the right people to build the solutions. We were efficient in the way we used our capital and planned our milestones in a way that it propelled the next stage and helped us move faster in, a, in an industry where things can be quite slow. That's wonderful. So what is next for Alvis Health? Um, well, the thing that we're all most excited about is the pediatric work that we're doing. We built a technology for remote symptom monitoring. And now what we're, what we're doing is adding predictive analytics to it to predict and prevent asthma attacks for children. If you, if you look at the demography of asthma, it's largely skewed for those below 16 years and those above 60 years. And for children, particularly, it's, it could be a, a very debilitating condition when they have to go to the hospital in a state of emergency, when they're struggling to breathe. 
And that's where a lot of the existing products are really quite poor in addressing the problem. So the award we received last year from the UK government, which you mentioned about, is for a project that we're leading together with Birmingham Children's Hospital, Imperial College and Royal Brompton Hospital, as well as Asthma UK, which is the largest uh, asthma charity in the UK. And this project is to build this home monitoring system, which can help prevent some of these asthma attacks in children. Um, and we're doing it over the, over the course of the next three years through multiple clinical studies. And this would involve everything from design of the product, which children love to use, right down to the regula- regulatory and clinical validation to launch it in the cycle of care. So this is something me and my team are very excited about. That's really fantastic. I mean, such an important work and making a real difference. That's great. For anyone thinking, I mean, you've already given so many great pieces of insight into what you've learned and how you've developed over this process. But for anyone thinking about developing a technology and creating their own company, is there a Mm. nugget of wisdom or advice that you would give? I'd say there are two things which have helped me a lot, which I would recommend people doing very early on. First of all, being very sure of what they want to do and just really removing all the glamour and romantic aspects of being a startup. That's really not worth getting into this for. There are other things which are more fulfilling, but I wouldn't recommend people falling for the glamour aspect of it. So being very, very sure that it is what they want to do. Once they're very, very sure, the second thing that I would that I would say is, is to not give up and to not quit. Um, things do get very ugly and do get very difficult. But as you were saying earlier, a lot of people who have gone through this journey, they've had difficult times. Mm-hmm. And from what I've heard from my mentors and from what I've learned, the one thing that helps in the long term is resilience. And I would recommend people to not give up and to not stop doing it just because things have gotten tough. Every, everybody's had it tough, so it's important not to quit. That's an important thing to keep in mind, because I think anyone going through a difficult process like a startup wants to quit many times. I remember starting my PhD and from the very beginning, we were told that we should write a postcard to ourselves why we are doing this and stick it on the wall to read it every time you want to quit. And I think that's true for so many journeys where you know it's going to be hard and and you have to remember your reasons to stick with it, which is, which is really great. And you've done a phenomenal job, but before we end, it's (laughs) it's continuous journey. It's a continuous learning and a continuous journey, but uh, this was really, really interesting. But before we end, I just want to ask you if you have a recommendation for a book or an article or something that inspires you, something that you think might be of interest to others. One of the books that has um, helped me a lot is this one called um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. It's by an entrepreneur uh, turned investor called Ben Horowitz. And it talks about some of those very difficult times um, that one might face when starting a company and some of the learnings that the writer has had in solving this. So that is something that I would recommend. A couple of other things, I spent a lot of my uh, time, a notoriously high amount of time on YouTube. So a few of the channels that I like that, one of them is School of Life, which have uh, mm. short videos about a range of different topics. And there are lots of interviews that I that I like to follow. Elon Musk is again, one, of, uh, one of the people who I admire the most uh, for his engineering abilities. So a lot of his videos and, and interviews that I've seen. On a more lighter end, there's, there's a YouTuber called Aussie Man. And he has, uh, he reviews random videos and the channel is called Aussie Man Reviews. And I haven't heard of that. I'm always on my edge looking for his next video uh, to have a laugh. That is something that I would uh, recommend. That's the kind of humor that uh, that tickles your fancy. (laughs) That's really, really good. And as you said, listening to other startups 
about their stories is so, so valuable. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that. Well, Mikesh, this was an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed hearing more about your process and how you are doing. And thank you very much for sharing your insights. It was very enjoyable. Thank you for having me on this.